Lesson one has been hopefully a private approach first. What about lesson two? What else might we notice about constructive criticism? I've tried to very briefly state it like this, and let me build upon the point if I might. Criticize the action. Although I've stated it a bit later, you'll notice there's a habit that I suppose any of us can appreciate as a tendency. Here's someone who is involved in something, and rather than criticize the action, we criticize the person. We, in fact, drag the person's name, and we speak so often about the behavior and character in general of the person. That, again, isn't wise. Notice again what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 18. Revisiting that same passage, the Lord, the Master Himself said, If thy brother again trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. The five-letter word fault is what is actually appearing in the text. The emphasis, the point, is not the overall general tenor and character of the person's life. Cast the spotlight on the action. You can perhaps easily appreciate why. Furthermore, in Galatians 2.11, as we think about that passage, we'll more thoroughly discuss this in a moment. But you may recall that Peter himself was involved in a mistake. He was involved in a sinful action. Paul said, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now you'll notice as Paul elaborated upon that, he identified the thing that Peter had done. Peter had obviously done a lot of good things in his life, but here was one bad judgment, here was one poor choice. And that was the thing upon which Paul cast the spotlight. The habit, again, or the thing that is sometimes the tendency, is we cast the spotlight in a broad umbrella to the person rather than the specific action. And that, again, is missing the point. It's difficult for the person to learn much from that. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, there in the heart of the book of Proverbs, we again notice a statement indicating the great intensity of this very point. Understanding that it's the thing, it's the action that one needs to consider with care, and that's what you want to correct. Following that point, notice point number four with me. That is to say, as you and I would wish to properly give constructive criticism, be humble. We would each probably be quick to list this requirement of the Word of God, wouldn't we? Being being humble. I would begin that by asking you to recall that Jesus, in fact, seemingly had much to say directly about that Himself. As the Sermon on the Mount's closing chapter begins in Matthew 7, verse 1, we're told something about judging. That's often been a text that we've reflected upon, and it is a mighty and very powerful thing to be sure. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. Now, I realize many throughout the ages maybe have been quick to take that from its context. But one thing for sure it reminds us of is those same problems that someone else may be facing. You and I may well face something like it ourselves, and it may not be that far in the future. 
And therefore, it's important for us to appreciate the attitude that should characterize our desire to correct someone else. How would we want them to correct us? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, in the midst of that passage, the following statement is found. Let's notice all of it. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Notice the two things that close that verse. Meekness should be characteristic of my approach to correct this individual. And secondly, the ever-present awareness that I myself could soon be guilty of problems, issues, or errors that may require the constructive criticism of another. Meekness and careful consideration. Now you'll notice with that motivation of humility, that motivation throughout the Word of God is highlighted like this. The ultimate and basic matter that should move you and I for this constructive criticism is this. We want what's better for that person. I'm not in it to make myself look good. I ought not be in it simply to rub something in their face. My goal should be out of love for improving their life and maybe even leading to their home in heaven. Now the Bible calls that love, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, as Paul delivered that masterpiece of description concerning love, he highlighted in there, love doesn't envy, it doesn't vaunt itself, and it's not puffed up. Love doesn't do any of those things. Rather, it's genuinely concerned for the welfare of the one who is its object. Here's a person who has behaved again in a fashion that's less than ideal. Maybe it's been an affront to me as well as to others in an attitude of hoping to correct that so that it doesn't happen anymore. I approach the person with humility, making sure that they understand. Maybe they don't even know what they did, but making sure that they understand what was accomplished and how it was perceived. One final thing. In 1 Peter 5 verse 6, there's a command stated for each of us to carefully consider. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will exalt you in due time. You and I are commanded to be humble. Even then as we give constructive criticism, might we ever do so with a proper attitude and with a desire to bring about the motivation that the Word of God would instill within it. The next point is this one. So far, it's true that we've looked at all these things that truly have been needful and important, but the list goes on. Exaggeration. Again, there is a tendency, a temptation, no doubt, that when there is a particular matter attempting to be constructively criticized, it would seem exaggeration is a strong tendency. Again, there's a specific matter in mind, and yet, as I confront them, I blow it up and exaggerate the point far beyond the particular matter of the specifics at hand. Let me, at this particular time, remind you of some words in the English language that are very, very powerful, and I fear that so many times we overlook them. Would you consider with me for a moment the word always? What does the word always mean? 
It doesn't just mean that something happens every now and then. When you and I use the word always, we give the impression this is an ongoing, frequent, and exceedingly common thing. That's what always means. And yet, here's an individual who has done something, and I confront them, and I say, you're always behaving like this. Now, quite frankly, that isn't true. It's not that they behave that way 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's not that they even behave that way a couple of hours a day, most every day. I have exaggerated far beyond the bounds of what was realistic. I shouldn't have done that. Another word in the, in the English language that can offer some problem is the word never. When you use the word never, what does that mean? It means that event, that phenomenon, that episode does not occur, not even once, on any occasion. And yet, as I confront someone or as I speak with someone with a desire to be constructive in that criticism, I say, you never do this. Is that really right? Have they ever at any time done anything remotely related to a positive matter? We should be cautious about using words like never and always. Our goal is to constructively criticize, here's a certain event as we address that event. May we be mindful the Bible does demand that we always speak the truth. So if we use the word always or never, let's be careful to make sure that really is correct. And not only that, look at the admonition of Jesus in Matthew 5, 37. On that occasion, the Master Himself, again in that Sermon on the Mount, He said, Let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, for whatsoever is more than this cometh of sin. You'll notice He said, directly address the matter at hand. Don't exaggerate. Don't tend to embellish or elaborate. You and I could learn a great deal from the way the Master often rebuked people. Haven't you often been impressed? Here was a woman, John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman. There were a lot of issues in her life. You and I know as the conversation developed, many of them came to the surface. When Jesus confronted her, constructively criticizing her, how did He do it? Do you recall Him using words like never and always? Do you recall Him, in fact, throwing a blanket statement on all the attributes of her character? He one by one addressed those matters, leading her along the appreciation of conversation, and she was so impressed by Him. She went into the city, told all the others that the one with whom she had just conversed was in fact the Messiah. She was so impressed by His approach. As you and I come to the next point, may I invite you to consider point number six as we strive to be constructive in our criticism, stay on target. Maybe you've often heard, hitting a moving target is awfully hard. Well, the same thing is true in conversation, isn't it? Here's an individual who has had the motivation and desire to come and to improve something about my person and my behavior. And they begin the conversation and it isn't long before they've switched to a different subject. And this other attribute of my character is now at fault. And soon it's yet another one. We get the idea. The pointed hand, the first matter, was the one upon which the focus should have been stayed. And I could have learned then. 
and properly made the adjustments in life. You see, hitting a moving target, even in discussion on points like this, is usually not very effective. Look at some of these verses, if you would. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus gave one of the highest ethical statements to be found anywhere. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. Quite often it's interesting to consider how I would appreciate it if I were on the receiving end of the criticism. So again, before I quickly try to correct every attribute of every facet of this other person's life, how would I feel about it if he approached me that way? Let's take one subject at a time. This is the matter of immediate import. Stay on target. Isn't that what the Lord Himself asserted? Could I invite you to recall these Bible examples? We'll start in 3 John verses 13 and 14. You may recall that the book of 3 John has within it a number of interesting relations to individuals. First, mention was made of Gaius, and later was Diotrephes, and then Demetrius. And yet, as John wrote that little letter to Gaius, he said, I have many things to write unto thee, but I won't write them with pen and ink. I hope to come to you shortly. Notice again the statement, I won't burden you down with all these matters included in a long letter. I'd like to share them timely, rightfully, and appropriately when I come to visit. Isn't it interesting as you then think about remaining on target? The sentiments of those passages as well as others remind us of even how practical that thing can be. I noted a moment ago with you about the Lord's correction of that Samaritan woman. You could probably think about some others as well, and yet comes to mind that scene in both John chapters 5 and 6. There were some Pharisees who, quite frankly, had approached the Lord in a very accusatory way. How did Jesus deal with that subject? We know the Pharisees had a number of issues that plagued them, and Matthew chapter 23 reveals a lot of them. Notice the Lord didn't mention every one of them in that scene of John chapter 5. He dealt with the matter at hand and impressed them with correction in light of that one. Perhaps you and I could keep those thoughts in mind as well. What about point number seven? In addition to these things, as you and I think about administering or at least making note of constructive criticism... We earlier highlighted the importance of humility. Today, why don't we think about gentleness and kindness, at least at this next moment. We each know very well, don't we, that it can often be an immediate matter of defensiveness. Here's someone who's approached me, and something about me isn't to his or her liking, and furthermore, it may even have been a rather notable affront to them. Well, please appreciate as you're the one giving that criticism. Be careful about the tone of your voice. Make sure it is a tone of kindness and gentleness in such a way you have the other person's best interest at heart. As you do that, think about some of these verses. May I suggest that if we keep in mind or at least do this in a way where there's a tone of harshness, 
abrasiveness, defensiveness, it's almost guaranteed that that criticism, even though the desire may initially have been constructive, it likely will not accomplish anything. Because you can sense that the tone, the person will immediately put up a barrier of defensiveness, and in all likelihood, they will simply discount almost everything that's said. That's not the desire. In fact, as you notice some of these verses, think about the way in which the Bible describes answers. And I'm going to begin in 1 Samuel 25. Now the scene there is a very moving one. David, of course, at the time was not in Jerusalem. He had been forced to flee. And you remember, though, that he and his men were in need. They had been on the run and they needed some supplies, and that even included food. At that particular season of the year, Nabal was taking care of the sheep. And it was, of course, the thing to do at that time that you would provide for those that were, of course, in need. But David sent his men to Nabal. And you remember how Nabal replied, I'm not giving you anything. And he very abrasively and abruptly said, You're not getting anything from me. That attitude was such that it dwelled up in David, and David then was going to approach the man and take his life, and not only he, but a number of others with him. But thankfully, Nabal had a wife that was far more sensible than he was. She heard that they had come. Now, those servants didn't talk to her, but the servants of Nabal told the master's wife, here was a man that came, and here's what he requested, and here's how your husband replied to them. She quickly got a bunch of supplies together and she sent an envoy out to meet David and David met the envoy and his wrath was appeased and he ultimately pronounced a great blessing and he saved the man's life. May I ask you to notice what a difference the tone of the response made. Nabal answered very churlishly, very harshly, very abrasively. But his wife Abigail answered very sweetly, understandably, and kindly. And in that gentleness, you'll notice that ultimately that so impressed David that he saved Nabal's life. And ultimately, as you might well remember, after Nabal died, David married her. She became one of his wives. Now, be that as it may, you may appreciate that Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says that a soft answer turneth away wrath. May you and I appreciate the nature of softness in our words. As you and I come to point number eight, let's now turn those tables around slightly. Much of the lesson, admittedly so far, has surrounded the one who is giving the constructive criticism. How do I receive it? When a person approaches you or I, in what way should we receive that, that constructive criticism, that correction? Well, again, the Word of God has much to say, and some of that we've discussed already, but let's cast an especial spotlight on this. First, aren't you impressed that rebuke in the Word of God is highlighted as a very important and needful thing? Let's face it, all of us make our mistakes. All of us are guilty of judgment that isn't always well received by others. When that's true and when they approach us, May you and I first appreciate an attitude of thanksgiving. 
I'll be the first to say that can be hard. That can be very demanding. Here's an individual who's approached me with a fault I've committed, an error that I've made, a judgment that I have in fact set forth, and I'm supposed to be thankful they've come to me like this? According to the Bible, the answer is yes. And here's the reason why. You and I understand well that what may be motivating the other person may not be wholeheartedly good. Maybe they're out to get something. Maybe they are motivated by far less than genuine love. But there still might be some truth in what they say. There still might be some nature of my character that might be improved if I would listen with care to what they're saying. Aren't you and I all desirous of being like Jesus in that He never sinned? Not even in thought did He ever sin. Every word that He spoke was proper and right. Every action He did was right on target. Well, you and I know we'd like to be like that. And yet here is something I've done that has been an offense to somebody. Consider verses like this. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 17, for example, we're admonished, are we not, to appreciate that as we consider with thanksgiving those words that someone else speaks, we can at least take from it something to benefit ourselves, something to live more rightly. And not only that, in Psalm 141 verse 5, Brother Vestal read that as the lesson text earlier today. I'd like to reread that and ask you to think about especially the middle part of that verse. Let the righteous smite me. Does that sound like something fun? Let a righteous man strike me, smite me. He goes on to say, it shall be kindness. It should be the desire that you and I have for a person who's righteous, a person who's godly, a person who is attuned to the frequency of God to offer to you and me words of constructive criticism because they're thinking biblically and they're thinking rightly. And if there's something about my character, my behavior, my attitude that's not in keeping with this, I should be thankful they're telling me. Let's read on. And let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil. Did you hear that? The reproof of a righteous man I should consider as excellent oil. It's a desirable thing. It's a wholesome and sound thing that I can utilize to move myself in a better direction. Let's read on. Which shall not break my head. I'm sure we've all heard that statement. Words can't ultimately harm me, or at least hurt me very, very carefully. But let's think carefully. We know words can, in fact, cause troubles. And yet, the words of a righteous man, are here said to be an excellent oil. And the verse closes by saying, For yet my prayer shall also be in their calamity. Notice what that indicates. Here's a righteous person who has admonished me, corrected me, and did so in a motivation of love. My thanksgiving should be so that I'll thank God for what they've done. Do you do that? Do I do that? Isn't it easy to, in fact, be defensive, to be vengeful, to hold a grudge, to be angry? I can't believe he said that to me. After everything else that I've always done, notice again, stay on target. Everything else may be wonderful, but here is something about my life 
and he's had enough love and enough concern to bring it to my attention. First thing, of course, to appreciate, maybe I didn't even understand or realize that it would be received that way, but yet I've learned something. Not only that, you'll notice as we close that slide, maybe, if I didn't realize it, I could understand that that, in light of the Word of God, is actually an error, and it needs to be the subject of my repentance. And if so, I'm then in Luke 17, 3, to appreciate the following. If he repents, forgive him. Well, the next point of the lesson will take us to the next idea. How else then should I appreciate receiving this? Don't ever, ever be guilty of retaliation. The Word of God speaks of that in such strength and in such directness, doesn't it? Here's a person who has approached me. This individual has shared with me these matters of importance, criticism, if you please. And again, a temptation might well be to take out vengeance, to retaliate. I'll get back at him. I can't believe he said that to me. Well, look just briefly at what the Bible has to say in some ways about that. Isn't it interesting that the Old Testament, you and I remember well that principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that was embedded within the heart of that law of Moses, and it was a very vital aspect of it. But you and I also remember very well in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and following, Jesus said, But I say unto you, remember, He said, You've heard it's been said, an eye for an eye, but I'm saying this to you. Jesus did away with that. Did you notice the language that He then utilized there in, in Matthew chapter 5? I'd like, to, I'd like you to read a couple of the verses. Listen as I read them in our hearing this morning. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at thy law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Pausing at that point, you will again appreciate, here's an individual approached me with these words of constructive criticism. It's not my business, or at least if I'm a servant to God, I shouldn't try to get even with him and immediately try to, well, what about this aspect of your life? You're no better than I am. That misses the point. There may be an issue in his life, and when the time is right, certainly bring that to that gentleman's attention. But the point being at hand is there's a flaw in my life and I need to do something about it or at least listen with care to what the person has had enough concern to say. Maybe the thing that was done he took wrongly. But this will provide me a time to explain it and clear the air and put it to rest. Isn't it amazing how that as the things of the Bible are utilized, you and I can live a life not only receiving, but also giving this criticism in the right way. You'll notice that vengeance in Romans 12, verses 19 and 20 is said to be evil. God has reserved vengeance for Himself. It's not my place or yours. At this point, let's close our lesson. 
we've studied today about constructive criticism and some rules of thumb that you and I can utilize as we both receive and properly give this criticism. The first thing at this point that's worthy to say, the Word of God is such that God wants all of us to be saved. He wants you to enter into heaven one day as well as He does me. Have you become a Christian? The Bible not only addresses the ongoing ways to live life in the right way, but how to begin the Christian life. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is a Son of God. You need to repent of your sins. You need to confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God. And you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And it's not that that's just a suggestion. Jesus says you must do those things if you haven't done them today. And you realize the Lord died for you. You realize what in fact awaits those who are disobedient. Why not today? If you have become a Christian though, and for perhaps a while you have tasted the sweetness and goodness of the Word of God to borrow the words of Hebrews 6, but perhaps you've strayed away from faithfulness. Your heart has begun to grow hard. Your mind has begun to grow defensive, not only in light of the Bible, but in line of those who are Christians. You need to change that at once. Because if you let it go on, your heart's going to become seared with a hot iron. You'll reach a point beyond which it's going to be very difficult for even the Word of God to reach you. Don't let that happen. A congregation of people would be delighted to pray to God on your behalf today. If there's sins in your life known and appreciated publicly, why not come and confess them and beseech God's forgiveness? He's promised that if you'll repent them and confess them, He'll forgive them. Today, if there's anybody in this audience in that circumstance, allow the constructive criticism of the Bible to reach your heart. And if we could be of assistance to you, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?